Okay, let's go to the book of Romans. <clears throat> I'm interrupting the study in Ephesians today because I'm going to talk about a Christian perspective on politics. And uh, as you're turning to Romans chapter 13, I want to remind you that Monday is the last day for voter registration. And I highly encourage you to be a registered voter and to vote come November 2nd. And uh, if you don't know how to do that, you can see me afterwards. But the, the easiest way here in, in, uh, on Kauai is to go down to the, uh, to the old, um, not the courthouse, the, um, what's the building? The county building. I, I don't know why I forgot that last night too. So the old county building that they just renovated uh, is the place you want to go to register because if you try to mail it in at this point, it won't get there in time. So you have to go physically register down at the county building to be able to be a registered voter so you can participate in this gift that God has given us of uh, voting in a democracy. But let's begin by reading uh, Romans chapter 13, the verse 7 verses, and then we'll have a, a, a hopefully an adventure, uh, hopefully something very encouraging, inspiring, uh, maybe uh, enlightening in helping us as Christians understand from a biblical perspective what our, what our ideas and thoughts and, and perspectives should be on, on politics. Should we be highly involved or should we just give up on it because Jesus is coming? And so today we're going to take a look at that and uh, hopefully have some very practical aspects of how you can put that into practice in your life. So Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against God, what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Lord, we come to you this morning, and, and Lord, our hearts are just so full and thankful. We're so grateful for everything you're doing, God, and even the hardships that we go through. And uh, many here today are going through difficulties. God, even in the midst of that, we have the confidence of your sovereign power, your omniscience, your omnipotence, your capacity to take care of everything in our lives, your precious promises for us who believe in your son Jesus, and the promise of your soon return, and the inheritance of your son Jesus Christ that accompanies that coming, and the transformation of our lowly bodies finally into the image and nature of your glorious body. God, we can hardly wait. We have so much to look forward to, and even this life is a blessing. We have no complaints, just praise and glory and honor for your great name. And I pray as we study your word this morning and consider this very important issue of politics and, and the Christian's relationship to politics, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and that you would give us your eternal perspective on this very important issue. And Holy Spirit, I yield my heart and my mind and my mouth to you for your glory, that Jesus Christ might be exalted. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said,
Amen. Well, you've probably heard that uh, if you want to keep your friends, don't mix politics and religion. Those are the two things you want to avoid. I just read a couple of posts from some friends, actually, that, uh, that, that said some very unpleasant things to people that were posting political commentary on their Facebook, and were really trashing them for doing that. And uh, really, the truth is, if you want to put your friendships at risk, start talking politics and religion. And if you really want to lose your friends, mix those two together. And you're going to have absolute chaos. And, um, and that, that's actually happening right now in people's relationships over where we are in our political cycle right now. You know, we've had the debates, and of course, we know everything about what happened. And, you know, Romney won the, this first debate. And um, Obama, evidently, it might have been the altitude, Al Gore says. And maybe Romney cheated because he had notes on his handkerchief. I mean, you know, this is the place that we are in life right now. This is not encouraging. I don't know if you're in... That, that discourages me to realize that that's kind of where we are, the summary of some of, this, of these debates that have taken place. But these debates are, are providing for us an opportunity as a church to examine something that the Bible speaks a lot about and gives us insight on what our response should be as believers to not only the, the cycle that we're in right now of, of political uh, movement, but also to politics in general and how we should respond as believers in Jesus Christ. But I want to begin with a little bit of, uh, of humor, because not because the mess, rest of the message is humorless, but, but because I like humor, and I'm just going to do it because it's fun. Okay, so there are three guys, and they're trying to determine which profession was used first in the Bible. And the surgeon says the medical profession, of course, because uh, Adam had a rib removed, and, uh, and from that rib, Eve was created. Well, the engineer said, oh, no, no. Engineering was used first because just think of the engineering job it took to create the entire universe in the first place, and that was before Adam and Eve were even created. Well, the politician says, well, neither one of you would have had any raw materials to work with if we hadn't created chaos in the first place. <laughs> Bada-boom. Thank you. Because last night, it was like flat, and I told him, I guarantee you Sunday morning's going to do a better job than you did last night. We're always trying to figure out, is, is God a Democrat or a Republican? You know, it's kind of, is he on our side or their side, whichever that is. And, uh, and I want to tell you, the Bible actually speaks to both of these issues. In Ecclesiastes 10, verse 2, it says, The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. I'm, I'm just reading the Bible to you. Don't get mad at me. For those of you on the left, every time we find people in the Bible turning to God, it's always to the left. Abraham left the Ur of Chaldees and followed God. The Israelites left Egypt and followed God. The disciples left their nets and followed Jesus Christ. I think the balance for us, though, is in Proverbs 4.27 when it says, Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. (laughs) I think there's some good wisdom in that one. Well, I want to talk about a biblical perspective. And as we go through this, I want to talk about some practical application for that as well. But we need to back up all the way to the book of Genesis to understand God's perspective on politics. And in Genesis chapter 2, we find the falling of mankind. There was a probationary test that God established, and that test was, don't eat the fruit of this one tree. You've made thousands of trees, just don't eat that one. Nothing particular about that particular tree that that made it more attractive, except for the fact that it was prohibited. 
And by virtue of that prohibition, God set up a test for mankind to see if mankind was willing to allow the one true king, if you want to call him a president or whatever you want to call him, but the one true king who was going to establish a rule and a monarchy and a reign over not just the earth but the entire universe, if man would submit to that authority and that leadership. And, of course, we know that uh, Scripture teaches us that they failed their probationary test and instead, man installed himself as king, as the final authority over his own life. Well, we find that in Genesis chapter 11, there was a scattering of the nations. Why? Because the nations were oppositional to God's leadership. They established themselves as king, as president, as ruler over their universe. And by virtue of that, God in his heavenly council, made a decision to confuse the languages, which is where we get the Tower of Babel, Babel, meaning the confusion of languages. That took place because God in the, in the heavenly council said, if they succeed in this, there's little that they can't accomplish. And the purpose of God confusing the languages was not to limit the potential of humanity, but to eliminate the possibility of mankind completely divesting themselves from any relationship with God and be, being eternally lost and damned as a, as, a, as, a, uh, as a race. And so God in his sovereignty and his wisdom and his kindness and his love confused the languages. I share that with you because one of the things that we kind of are hoping for is some sort of a miraculous return to some sort of utopia we never had. We're all kind of hoping maybe this new election cycle, somebody will stand up. Aren't you guys, I mean, wouldn't we as Americans just be so stoked if we could have a deliverer that was political? I mean, isn't that kind of the heart cry of all of us? Isn't there someone that can step up? Isn't there someone that can lead us? Isn't there someone that can dig us out of this economic and financial and moral and ethical hole that we've dug ourselves into? We're all responsible for it. We all vote. We put these people in office. We've made choices. Now, we're only a small group here, relatively speaking, but we have a voice. And the fact is, is that there is no miraculous person of that nature. You know, the next person on the scene that's going to take that role, that's going to look like the miraculous person is the Antichrist. And God is setting the territory and the pace and the place for a people like us, a people of the world that get to the point we're so desperate that finally we find a man that seems that he has all the answers and the ability and the courage and the strength and the spine to do what's necessary to get our nation and ultimately the world on track. But that person is going to be a great deceiver. And until that time comes, the Bible's quite clear that we're not going to have anyone that's capable of doing that. In the book of Genesis chapter 12, we find the establishing and the stumbling of theocratic Israel. Theocratic means theos, God. Cratic, the democratic process. So ruled by God is a theocracy. Israel was a theocracy. And God established that theocracy to give Israel a probationary opportunity to be a witness of what it's like for God to be king of a people. And so God was the king of Israel. But they failed that probationary test as well, just like Adam and Eve did because they became dissatisfied with God as king. And they said, we want to be like all the other nations. And this is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so the elders gathered together, and they came to Samuel the prophet at Ramah, and they said, we want a king. And and he says, you've got a king. You've got the king of kings and the lord of lords. What else do you want? 
Oh, well, that, that's good, but we want a physical king. We want somebody that can put armor on and, and uh, shout real loud and make promises that he won't keep. We need somebody that will go out there for us and fight the battles. We need, we need a champion. And so God relented, and he told Samuel to let it go ahead and happen. And, of course, we know the outcome of that. Since that time, Psalm 2, verse 2, tells us that the nations have been in rebellion. The kings and the, of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, and they say, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. This is exactly where we are as a country. People want to be free of God. They want to be free of his word. They want to be free of his standards and of his, uh, of his perspective on life. They want to be free on issues of abortion and marriage and same-sex marriage. They want to be free on free speech issues, even if those things are deadly and really difficult for our country. The language that we use on television, everything else, it's just like it's complete chaos. That's where we are. We're, we're devolving. I think that's clear to everyone. And there's a part, there's a heart cry in every one of us that's so grieved that this is happening. If you care about this country, if you care about your family, if you care about the future, we're grieving and we're a bit nervous and we're uncertain as to how this is all going to turn out. And deep down there's this, there's this desire at some level that somehow maybe this election will make a difference. That somehow when November 2nd comes and, and the winner is chosen and when there's the installation of that leader in January of, of 2013, that, that we're going to turn a corner somehow miraculously. How I wish that could happen. I'm not saying it can't. People across the nation are calling for prayer. They're calling for fasting. I think that's a good thing to do. But the prophetic time clock is winding down. And the Bible seems to indicate, contrary to our heart desire, that somehow we're going to turn the clock back and actually end up in a utopia, the Bible actually says things are going to get worse and not better. That things are going to get more difficult, not easier. And that there is going to be a, a godless, Christless agenda that's going to be pushed upon every nation of the planet and I believe is already being pushed upon the United States. But the good news in all of this, which is excellent news, is that our king is coming. Our king is coming. And uh, the Bible tells us in, in Psalm uh, 72 that he's going to rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All the kings will bow down to him and all the nations will serve him. This is a speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. And that day is coming. And so there, the history of man under God's leadership has been abysmal because our hearts keep turning away from God. His leadership is excellent. It's perfect. It's flawless. But our response to it has not been. And the result is, is that we keep trying to install ourselves as king. We keep trying to install men and women as leaders, thinking that somehow they'll be able to untangle this mess. And if they were solid believers, if they were Christians, if they were living off of this biblical principle, I believe we could make a lot of progress. But it wouldn't turn the prophetic clock back. It's moving forward. And the Bible tells us prophetically that every prophecy has been fulfilled for the second coming of Christ and for the rapture of the church. And I believe we're right on the edge of it. And the key indicator to that is what's happening in Israel in their relationship with the Arab nations that are surrounding them. I, I wish I had time to talk about Benghazi and what happened in Libya and what's happening with the Muslim Brotherhood. I've talked about that before. But it is chaos over there. 
but it only looks like chaos. It's really not as chaotic as it looks. It's a very organized effort to turn the Muslim world against any free country, basically on the planet, beginning with Israel and then with the United States. So what I find interesting and comforting as well, besides the fact that our king is coming, is that Jesus, who responded perfectly to everything, lived in a time frame under Roman's rule where politics were as as important as they are here uh, in the United States, and he lived in that society that was every bit as pagan and and as corrupt as our culture is today, and in fact, by most measures, was significantly worse with their rampant immorality, their government corruption, their racial, class, and economic-driven slavery, the oppressive taxation, and the frequent political uprisings. And so when we see Jesus responding to politics, we have a pretty good idea of how we should be responding to politics as well. I want to reference briefly um, St. Augustine's book, called The City of God. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's a classic in literature. And in that book, he describes two cities. The first is the city of man, and it's built on the foundation of sinful, corrupt flesh. It's the city of the world. It's the cultures of the world. It's the politics of our world. And then secondarily, he describes the city of God, which is built on a firm foundation whose architect and builder is God, based on the book of Hebrews. And so he contrasts these two cities. And there's a, there's a commentator named Lutzer who said some things about Augustine's book and about this city of man. And I'd like to read that to you. And it's a, it's a paragraph long, uh, and, uh, and I hope you find it instructive and helpful. Lutzer says of Augustine's book, Augustine did not mean that the city of man is destitute of all civil righteousness and justice. Yes, pagans have built great civilizations thanks to the virtues they inherited as those created in the image of God. Indeed, Christians should be actively involved in the city of man, building it, maintaining it, and working alongside of those headed to destruction. But Christians should also have no illusions about building an earthly utopia, for they must pass this life with continual opposition from the citizens of this city of man. They must march through the crumbling empires of the world, spreading the knowledge of the gospel. And so I really love Uh, Augustine's perspective on this, and I love Lutzer's commentary on it, is he says we've got to stay invested in it and then separate from it at the same time. Invested because we have a part in in the kingdom of God on the earth as lights, as witnesses, as, as ambassadors for Christ, but ultimately recognizing that this isn't our home, that we're aliens and strangers here, and that we have a better city, a better country, a better kingdom coming. That doesn't mean we abandon the one that we're in. But it doesn't mean, on the other hand, that we cling, you know, with fear and trembling to this kingdom that we've got when we have a kingdom that's far superior that's on the doorstep for those of us that believe in Jesus Christ. So I want to give some practical perspective to living in this city of man that we are currently in. I think the first thing is acknowledge and submit to political and government authority. And that's what this passage in Romans says that these authorities have been established by God. They're divinely delegated to have authority given by God. And uh, these authorities are to commend what is right and punish wrong. So they're there to actually eliminate or, or diminish chaos and to bring some sense of direction and parameter and safety to the citizens of this world. And then fourthly, the governmental authorities or politics, uh, are an agent of God's authority. So God actually uses these, these agencies, these, 
government authorities, whatever type of politics it is, and of course we're a democracy, many nations aren't democracies, and, and certainly uh, many nations on the planet right now that have Christian populations in them are not democracies, they're led by dictators. And yet they are still called, as uh, Romans 13 tells us, to recognize that authority given by God. But one of the things simultaneously we have to be very careful of is political idolatry. And I find this happening a lot in the church in particular. Um, You may not know, but today is actually Pulpit Freedom Day. Probably some of you guys, I see a couple of pastors visiting. So good to have you guys here. And uh, I'm really delighted. We have some Calvary Chapel guys here that I've been friends with for a long time. But the, the temptation is, especially during the election cycle, is for us to ramp up and politics becomes really a really important part of what we're doing. Now, in, uh, on today, this particular day, there are thousands of churches across the United States that are declaring Pulpit Freedom Day. And what they mean by that is that they are actually going to preach on politics and they are actually going to support a certain uh, person that's running, probably Romney, I would guess, in most evangelical Christian circles, which is a bit of an irony where he's a Mormon. Uh, There's a lot of irony in this entire package of this political cycle that we're in. But a lot of evangelical churches will probably uh, support Romney as it relates to Pastor Pulpit Freedom Day. And what they're going to do is that they are going to break the law uh, by uh, preaching and actually endorsing a candidate, and they're going to send the DVD or the CD of their message to the IRS and challenge them to sue them. And the purpose is not because they're trying to hurt their church or have the church sued, but to finally break free of the sense that Christians can't talk about politics at church. And I'm in agreement with that, that we should be able to talk about politics at church. But I think the idea of endorsing and coming to a place where we, where we are actually rah, rah, rahing for a certain person within the constructs of church, I think is a mistake. This is my personal opinion. I think there are, probably, there are obviously thousands of pastors in other churches today that feel differently than I do. I'm all for standing up. I'm all for being courageous. I'm all for standing on this book. But I'm not all for having the church become the place where we think that somehow through political voting we are going to be saved from the dilemma on every level that we're facing as a nation in our country today. And so I think that um, one of the things that I remembered is, as I was preparing this message was Joshua as he was nearing Jericho. And you remember that this, this man came out with a sword, this flashing sword, and it was obviously, you know, uh, a, a, a um, Christophany, the presence of Christ in front of Joshua. And, and Joshua, not knowing who this man was, but recognizing that there was a spiritual dimension to this man, he said, are you on our side or our enemy's side? I mean, it's like, you know, it's like how we pray for football. Oh, God, let my team win, you know, and then everybody else is praying the same thing, you know, for their team. And, and so Joshua said, oh, God, let my team win. I hope you're on my side, you know. And, and of course, this angel said, look, I'm, a, I'm only on the side of the, the Lord of hosts. And I think that what we should be asking is not whose side is God on when it comes to this presidential election, but are we on God's side? That's the most important question rather than the question of whether God is supporting a particular candidate. So I think that there's a place for us to be involved, but we have to be careful about uh, you know, parking ourselves first and foremost as a political uh, person and primarily as a spiritual person in these events. So I want to encourage you that some of the things that we can do that I think are biblical is to commit to this political process and activity. We find lots of people, by the way, in the Bible uh, who are politically active. Joseph was second in command of all of Egypt. That's political. 
We find the same thing is true of Daniel in Babylon. He became second in command of all of Babylon. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Cornelius, a centurion, became a believer in it, and he continued to be a centurion. That's a political position in the military. And then, of course, uh, Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus. Uh, these all continued in public service in the arena of politics. So there's a place for us to be involved. And I think the first thing I would suggest, if you're following along in your notes, is educate yourself and be uh, a person that votes your values. Educate yourself on what the issues are, what the platforms of both parties are, and make a decision that is based on this book over against the platform of the party. And from that platform, you have to make a decision that which party best represents the kingdom of God, because that's the person we want in place, because that person is going to be the person that gives us the best opportunity to not save the world, because the world is not going to be saved in the end. It's going to be delivered, but it's not going to be saved as a utopia. It's going to be delivered by the king of kings, and he's going to establish his kingdom and and restore everything. It's going to be phenomenal. Make sure you're there by receiving Christ as your savior, because knowing him and knowing this makes everything else manageable. So, we need to educate ourselves and make sure that whoever we're voting for is most clearly in alignment with God. And I say most clearly because I don't think either of these candidates are completely in alignment with God. I think, would that be safe to say? So, you want to educate yourself and then line up their position with the Bible. The, the second thing is participate in the process, even running for office. I like what Edmund Burke, a very famous a political philosopher said, he said, all that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And one of the, the, the two extremes within the church today is that people get really polit- politically active. And right about now, they're putting all kinds of Facebooks on Twitter and Facebook, and they're offending their friends, and they're telling how stupid they are that you're even thinking about this other candidate, and uh, very demeaning. And it becomes very personal. People lose friends over this. And, and that's one response, and, and it's, 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 it's kind of cloaked in Christianity, is that, you know, how could you, and they, they go on and tell us uh, how idiotic we are for even thinking about voting for this candidate that we might be interested in. On the other extreme is the Christian that basically says, it's all going to burn, who cares? I don't vote. I have no interest in voting. I don't want to educate myself. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. There's nothing that we can do to stop it. Jesus, please come, you know? <laughs> but I would suggest that there's middle ground that God has called us to. And so I think that it's true that all that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men and good women to do nothing. Jesus Christ has made us to be his righteousness. He's called us to be an influence wherever we go. He's called us to be a fragrant aroma of Christ. He's called us to have a saving impact and be ambassadors on every level of our life, in our marriage, in our family, in our businesses, in the way we conduct ourselves in our finances, in how we conduct ourselves in the things that we enjoy doing in our free time and in our politics. All these things become a platform for declaring the glory and the praise of God. But I do want to say that that there needs to be a demonstration of political sensitivity Because even though some would argue otherwise, I believe that one's political affiliation is a biblically disputable issue. I know some of you are coming from different states, and and your state has like 75% Republican base. But 
here in Hawaii, we're like 80%, 85% Democrat. Uh, I was going to say Democratic, but the Democrat Party is represented here in Hawaii. So you would have to write a lot of Christians off in Hawaii uh, if you think that the Democrat, being a Democrat, sends a person to hell. I know some people think that. They really do. Now, I have very strong political feelings. I read a lot. I, I stay informed. I, I, not only in the United States, but globally. I, just, I didn't used to be that way, but I felt compelled as a Christian to, to know as much as possible about what's happening across the face of the earth so I can be uh, a blessing to you guys, to people I run into, and so I can speak to these issues. But at the end of the day, a political party is not going to save the world. Only Jesus Christ has that position and that authority to bring that kind of salvation. And so I want to I encourage you to avoid several attitudes when you, when you think about politics as it relates to your life. The first thing is avoid loving your political party more than you love the souls of men and women. I find this happening all the time, where, where people will actually love people less if they don't share their same political philosophy. Avoid loving winning more than being true to the Word of God. This is paramount. This matters more than anything else. Standing on this is what matters, even if we lose in our effort as we stand on the truth of this book. The third thing is avoid loving your patriotism and country more than the kingdom of God. You know, I love the United States. I I can't even tell you how proud I am to be an American. But it takes second class and second place to my love for the kingdom of God. And for every believing Christian, even our love and our patriotism, no matter how much you've served, no matter what you've done, no matter what offices you've held, they have to be secondary to the kingdom that's coming because this one is temporary and it's not going to last. And fifthly, avoid loving, uh, fostering an attitude of us versus them more than building bridges for potentially life-changing friendships. I do think that there's a, a, a need to fulfill responsibilities that we have being under our governing authorities. I don't like everything our country's doing right now. I don't like being 16 plus trillion dollars in debt. I don't like same-sex marriages. I don't like the union that, that, uh, that we're being forced into as a country. I don't like the moral degradation that's taking place. I don't like the ethical degradation. Do you know that people that are in our Bible college in that age group, they're having trouble trusting adults. You know why? Because everyone lies. No one tells the truth. And, and we actually have to fact check. Why in the world are we having to fact check a debate from two men that are going to represent our country? But they have to be fact checked because we don't have any confidence in what our politicians say. This is a terrible place that we've gotten to. But the answer isn't in becoming discouraged about what's happening, but it's recognizing what the Bible has already said, is that this is a failed kingdom. And in the book of Genesis, it tells us right away there was this probationary period. They lost it, and then they installed themselves as king. And then they lost it again when Israel was raised up to have a probationary influence on the world, to become the light to the nations of what it looks like when the King of kings and the Lord of lords is, is installed as leader. And they failed that. And you know, the truth is, is that we've all done the same thing because God has given us a test as well. And he said, will you let me be the king of your life? And sometimes on a day-to-day basis, and maybe some of you have been here today, you've been Christians for a long time. But if I were to ask you, in all honesty, is he really making all the decisions in your life? Is your life being guided by this book? or just by the political winds of your preferences and whatever seems to work for you. 
So even within the church, there's this, this slide away from the truth and the power and the majesty of our king's leadership. You know, this is why it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, that in the last days, which I believe we're in right now, in the last days, God is going to bring judgment on the church. It's going to be a refining and a testing time. And he's going to do that before he refines and tests the nations. Do you know why? Because he needs to raise up a pure church, a bride of Christ that actually believes what the Bible says and lives it and honors him as the king. And by virtue of that, the world will then have a model of this manifold wisdom of God that we've been studying in the book of Ephesians, this manifold witness of men and women just like you who are actually rising up for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're involved in politics. You honor what politics require. And I've got this listed here, these responsibilities. We need to submit. We need to pay taxes. We need to give honor and respect. And we need to pray. These are all things that we're called to do. But at the end of the day, we're men and women under the authority and leadership of the one true king. And I want to suggest to you that this is the church's golden hour. I, I, I hear people talking about how things are, you know, the church this and the church that. And, and I want to tell you there are more people coming to Christ right now on the planet than any other time in human history. There are more people responding than any other time in human history. And the church's moment is now more than any other time in human history because things are going to be challenging in the years to come. Things are going to get difficult. Life, I believe, is going to be fundamentally different than it is now in five and ten years from now if the Lord even tarries that long. And this is the moment when the church, if we have already made these decisions to make that kingdom our kingdom and that king our king, then we'll be prepared to help people find that king in the midst of their chaos. But if we haven't made that decision, we'll be just like everyone else. We'll have believed certain things about God, accepted certain truths about God, but we'll be in just as much of a panic, filling our houses with food and buying guns so that we can kill our neighbors as they come over and ask for food. I mean, I'm thinking, how do you do that? I'm like, I'm, I'm talking to a friend that, you know, they're, they're building up the armaments, you know. Obama, if he gets reelected, he's going to take all our guns away, and ammo is being bought by the ATF, and it's just stockpiling the ammo, taking all the hollow-point bullets away, and on and on it goes. And they're, they're stockpiling, and they've got armaments. And I'm thinking, really? Really? So your neighbor is going to come, and you're going to blow him away because he is hungry? Now, of course, they're thinking they're going to be attacked, you know, and that, that's possible, and I think there's always a place for defense. But I'm thinking, boy, this is the time for the church to rise up and cast everything off and be willing to let everything go, and in the midst of this disaster, be peacemakers and be people that reconcile people to God before his coming, which I think is very much at the door. So I want to turn your hearts to an eternal perspective in closing. I want to encourage you to renew your trust in God's sovereignty. God is the one that sets up kings and deposes them. He gives them to whoever he wishes, and he sets them over the lowliest of men. He's sovereign over all the kingdoms of man. This is David, uh, Daniel's prayer in Daniel 4, as he's recognizing that God is supreme, and he is orchestrating everything for his, not my purposes, because I'm telling you, it wouldn't play out like this if I were in charge. I mean, not me as president, but I'm talking about if I, had, if I could map this out, I would aim for utopia. 
I would aim for some sort of resurgence of the United States and recovery and blessing. That's what I would aim for. But God has his eyes on something far greater than simply a, a, a stumbling through life and an extension of the difficulties we already have. Because his kingdom is a kingdom without tears and without sadness and without harm and without death. That's the kingdom I want. But if it were left to me, I'd try to recreate this. By God's grace, he's in charge. And he's aiming at something far better and far more lasting and far more beneficial and far more pleasurable than anything we can think or imagine on this planet. So God does what he pleases over the powers of heaven and over the peoples of the earth, and he has authority in Jesus Christ, and he gave that authority to Christ, who's head over all things, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the rulers of the kings of the earth. And the Bible tells us in Psalm 33 that he is going to accomplish his purposes. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Man, I'm so comforted by that. Our God is big, and he's completely in charge. And we have absolutely nothing to worry about if our heart is focused on him. Which leads me to the second point of remembering our true citizenship and kingdom. And I've touched on this repeatedly already, but this is not our home and this is not your citizenship anymore. Yeah, you have a license. Yes, you have, you have a birth certificate, hopefully. Um, you have a birth certificate if you're a United States citizen running for public office. <laughs> but, yeah, well, I, only reporting the news. Um, but the, the fact is, is that this is not our, our home. This isn't our final resting place. So we need to have a very light, open hand with this. And I want to tell you the hardest thing for the church today is going to be to keep our eyes fixed on the eternal. You know why? Because up until about maybe 100 years ago, 150 years ago, the church and the saints and the writers and the, 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 the pilgrims and all these different people, the Puritans, they constantly thought about and wrote about what? The coming kingdom. They thought about it incessantly. Why? Because life was hard. And they were looking forward to this kingdom. Do you know that we think a lot less about the kingdom than the saints of the past for a very simple reason is that our life has not been hard. I'm not saying you haven't had difficulties, but I'm saying we, we have enjoyed the pleasures of what the world can offer most of us for most of our lives. And because of that, this passion for the eternal has kind of diminished. And because of that, we've accumulated and we've gathered and we've, we've amassed. And the result is, as we see these things on the, on the horizon, this firestorm that we're about to enter into, that we're already partially into, we're frightened. Because all of this stuff that's given us so much pleasure is at risk. And I believe that God is going to call the church to let go and to surrender. And my suggestion to you is to do it now before you're forced to. Before you don't have a choice. Before it happens to you. Let it go. Keep using it while God has it there. But in your mind, be prepared to release it so that when it happens, it's not devastating. And instead, you can be a part of that number of people who are ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ, rescuing and helping people that don't have the hope that you've got when they lose the same kinds of things, the same privileges, the same freedoms, the same economic stability. So remember your citizenship. You are citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. Thirdly, I'd I'd encourage you to reconfirm your primary mission. And that primary mission is to seek first his kingdom. That's with the king, that's with the realm, and that's with the citizenship. 
The king is Jesus. The realm is his newly created heaven and earth that's on its way. And then thirdly, the citizenship, which is made up of men and women like us and those that we have the privilege of sharing and inviting into this eternal life with Christ. So we need to seek that kingdom. We need to proclaim the praises of God in the midst of a nation and a uh, world that's rejecting him. And we need to make disciples of all nations. And this is the God-given answer to the need for change and transformation across the globe. I was talking with a friend last night or yesterday as we were at farm, uh, I almost said farm fair, coconut festival sharing the gospel with people. And uh, there was a little break in the, in the uh, traffic and so we were talking with each other about politics came up. And so I started talking about that together. And the thing that I, that I, I shared is that, you know, it's hard to get a person to change their political persuasion. If you've ever tried, it's really not usually successful. People have very strong opinions. It's very infrequent that you say, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, well, thank you. for. I'm going to become a whatever now that you said all those things. How, how many of you have ever had a conversation like that? Nobody. People are, are, are entrenched in these positions that they've got. But even if we could get them to change, is that really going to change their heart? What, what people need is a, is a transformation of inward work, not outward work. The transformation of, of, a, of a change in our heart versus a political party change. That doesn't change anyone ultimately. But if we can change a person's heart, then they become influenced by this book, and this book influences all the rest of the, their decisions for the rest of their life in ever-increasing measure. And by virtue of that, the Bible's remedy and Jesus Christ's remedy to the problem of politics in the world is not to enter into that trying to convert people in their politics, but trying to convert people into salvation and eternal life. And that's why the Bible says, make disciples of all nations. Don't make Republicans of all people or Democrats of all people. It says, make disciples. Win people to Christ. So as we were across the nation, pastors are, are preaching and and endorsing a certain candidate today, I'm thinking to myself, what if the pastors were just to preach to people and said, if each one of you could just win one person to Christ and had the courage to share the gospel with simply one person, and if all of us did that maybe once or twice or three times a year, in just a handful of years, we could win the entire population of the United States plus the world to Jesus Christ. And by virtue of that, their politics would change. That's the only hope we have. But you know what God says is that the, the way is narrow and that broad is the way to destruction. And that's why God has a plan to not create a utopia, but to take care of this and end it and restore it and give us a new beginning with him as the king and those that want to be under his citizenship in that realm of relationship with Jesus Christ. So we have a, an obligation to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And you usually don't hear that from a pastor it's, you know, oh, both foot in the, in the kingdom. And I am all for that. But there's a part of us, as Jesus said, when he prayed to the Father, he said, I'm not praying you take them out of the world. I'm just praying that you'll sustain them in the midst of it. As they live and they profess and they confess Jesus Christ and as they share this message of freedom with other people. And this is the privilege that we have as Christians. We're living in two worlds, city of man and the city of God. The city of man is going to collapse. The city of man is on its decline and its destruction is prophesied in scripture but the city of god is also prophesied in scripture and he's at the door and i want to encourage all of you this is not a time to be discouraged it's not a time to be overwhelmed it's not a time to have your heart filled with fear it's a time to look up and realize that your redemption is drawing nigh 
and your king is on his way. And all of your problems, all of your hardship, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the tears, all of the sorrow, all of the sadness, all of the uh, injustice will finally be over. And I'm just thinking, how much time is going to be freed up in our lives once that happens? I mean, imagine how much time and thought you give to all of these things that are corrupting influences, the sin that happens to us, sometimes the consequences of our own sin. All that time, all that energy is finally going to be relieved of us. It's going to be like being on vacation on Kauai and not having a worry in the world. And I know even you vacationers have worries. But God has come, and he's given us a plan, and he's our king. And so, yes, be involved, and I want to encourage you highly to vote. It is a great privilege for us to vote. But at the end of the day, we need to renew our trust in the sovereignty of God. We need to remember where our citizenship is. It's in his kingdom and not this kingdom. And we need to reconfirm our primary mission, which is seeking first his kingdom and making disciples of all nations. If you want to make a difference politically, then give yourself to winning people to Christ. Start posting things on your or privately messaging or emailing or better yet, go have coffee or have a dinner or invite somebody over and have a face-to-face and begin to share with them the wonderful work that God has done in your life. That's the hope the world needs. That's the king that people need. That's the kingdom that has the only hope of ever redeeming us and ever rescuing us from the mission and and the life that we have here. Genesis to Revelation. Man's kingdom fails. But Genesis to Revelation, the king promises his kingdom will never, ever fail. Father, we thank you for this time this morning and for your word. And what a privilege, God, to realize that we have nothing to fear. We have only things to look forward to. And even though our lives are, gonna, are, are, are changing and already have changed, God, and they're going to change more, it only moves us to let go of the temporal things of this life, even as we enjoy them, but to release and open our hand and say, God, we're, we're fine with whatever you want to do. We want our lives to be a living sacrifice. We want to surrender ourselves in every capacity for your eternal purposes, and we want to live a life of praise and honor and glory and majesty as we look on you as our King and as our Lord and as our Savior, and we completely humble ourselves and surrender and say, you are our King You are the deliverer. You are the one we've been waiting for and the one we're looking forward to. And until that time comes and everything is finalized and we're in your presence, may we be found faithful in this fallen world, the city of man, corrupted by carnal, sinful nature, and yet with the promise of redemption through the king, the creator of the universe. And so, God, we come this morning and we say, have your way in our lives. Use us for your glory. And God, raise us up for such a time as this to carry out your work of sharing the gospel. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.